The Working Artist Project is brought to you by Second Line Arts Collective. Learn how you can support at secondlinearts.org. We're creating a platform for those who are curious. One that tells the story from the artist's perspective. Moments in time, captured from the innovators who are reshaping dance, music, theater, and the visual arts. This is The Working Artist Project. Good evening, ladies and gentlemen. Welcome to The Working Artist Project. My name is Darian Douglas, and we have the one and only Greg Ajid, my fearless co-host. What's up, Greg? What's up? What's up, Mr. Douglas? How are you? Happy New Year. Happy New Year, man. Just trying to get my, my computer here. It's glitching out. But uh, in, in the meantime, while I figure this out, we have a very special guest today. And uh, I guess Spike is a champion of the, the jazz community in New York City. And so many of us, I know I did, grew up like dreaming of playing at Smalls, man. Like watching, you know, like Eric Harlan on my computer in the basement during college being like, one day, man, I'm just, I'm going to play at Smalls, man. Like it's going to be great. <laughs> Yo, and, I, I totally feel you on that. There's this, man, every time I visit New York, especially when I was younger, man, it was just like, I'd get off the plane and go to Smalls. <laughs> right. <laughs> so it's, it's amazing that, you know, what, what, what Smalls means to the, the music community and, um, and, you know, Spike is the man that makes this happen. One of the people who make it happen. Absolutely. It's a great crew of, crew of people over there. And uh, I guess, why don't we go ahead and bring Spike on and we'll get this thing rolling, man. What's up, Spike? Oh, hold on. I got to, you got to unmute you. There you go. What's up, man? Hey, Darren. How are you? I'm great. Yeah. Thanks for coming on the show, man. And thanks for inviting me. It's a pleasure. Absolutely. Man, I want to start kind of at the beginning of your story. Um, just for the people who don't know, it's the five people in the world who don't know about you. Well, I'm sure there's many that don't know. Yeah, so I how, don't even know. You know <laughs> how did this whole thing get started, man? Uh, you mean uh, Smalls Jazz Club or my life or what? Let's, let's that- take, we should take a step back. So, how, 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 uh, you know, I, I, you're a wonderful pianist. And I was wondering maybe how, how did uh, life bring you uh, music? Oh, thank you for asking that question. Actually, my mother started me on piano lessons when I was very young. She got a piano and brought it in the house and then uh, got me a a piano lessons with a local lady in our neighborhood. And uh, this was I was I grew up I was born in Manhattan and my dad was teaching at Columbia University at the time. But we were living in a place called Teaneck, which is right over the George Washington Bridge, a small town in right out in New Jersey there. and so I was going to school there and I started piano lessons in that neighborhood. And my mom was very diligent about making me practice. I have to say it was, it was quite, uh, there was, you know, it was quite strict for a while there where I had to practice. And what that did was it kind of got my mind into the piano and I took to it very quickly. And then believe it or not, there was this television movie starring Billy D. Williams as Scott Joplin. And it was a it was a story of Scott Joplin, a movie about him, like a docudrama, or not even you know it was like a TV show about Scott Joplin. And I saw that, and it blew my mind for some reason. It made me just that was it just I don't know. So I started really getting into ragtime piano and playing Scott Joplin's music when I was very young. Uh, after that, 
what happened is my father got a job in St. Louis, Missouri. And when I was about 13 years old, he moved me to St. Louis, Missouri, where I went to high school. And it was in that high school, they had actually quite a few great jazz musicians that are still to this day uh, playing at the top of the field. You know, uh, for example, Neil Kane and Peter Martin, the pianist, and Todd Williams, the saxophone player, and uh, Chris Thomas, the bass player. Nice. Um, we all went to the same high school and had the same high school jazz band together. Uh, Jeremy Davenport was a great trumpet player that he's still playing in New Orleans. And uh, we were all friends in high school. Actually, Peter Martin was kind of the ringleader, but it got us thinking about jazz music. And then uh, that was the time when this was about 1985 and uh, Winton Marcellus was just coming into prominence at that time. And he really had a, a heavy effect on us. And he And I remember we met him and he kind of gave us some advice about what to practice and what to transcribe and this and that. And so it got us all, put a fire under all of our asses actually. And every one of us to this day has become a professional musician, you know, in the scene. Um, but those guys all went to New Orleans and I went, I went back to my hometown, New York City, and I went to the new school and I, I got into their jazz contemporary music program. And that was in the year 1986. So uh, my classmates at that time were uh, guys like uh, Peter Bernstein and Jesse Davis and uh, Larry Goldings and Brad Meldow and uh, Samia Hell. And there was like a, a whole group of very talented young people getting together at the new school at that time. And also the, the New York City jazz scene was quite fertile back in those days. It was really quite a different thing. Well, now it's a different story altogether. But even in those days, it was quite it was quite vibrant. Um, I began to play gigs and stuff, just like, a, you know, age 19, 20 in New York City. And in those days, you could do a lot of gigs, uh, you know, in restaurants, um, playing duos with bass players or just solo piano. I did a lot of that. Or there was a lot of little clubs in the East Village. You could play trio or quartet, didn't pay a lot, but you would play a lot of jam sessions. And then, you know, normal gigs like art galleries and private parties and teaching, whatever you could do, you could make a living. And I, that's basically what I did for quite a long time, basically almost till I was 40, really. I mean, that includes some tours. I got a chance to work with Maynard Ferguson's band and tour with them. And uh, I did a lot of big bands like Artie Shaw, big band, Glenn Miller, big band. Um, I got to meet Tony Bennett, started working with him a little bit as a rehearsal pianist. And I had interactions with great musicians at that time, but, uh, when I turned about 40 or just as I got to be 40 years old, I kind of had this feeling like, man, you know, I got to think about my future because it's, I've already been playing jazz in New York 20 something years and it's, it's very difficult, you know? Um, so I decided to go back to school and I enrolled at the uh, state university in New York where you had Todd Kuhlman running that program. And I did my master's there. I came in as like an old man, all these young guys, but um, it was very good for me because um, it got me like focused on, you know, thinking about being a teacher and that kind of thing. And then what happened was I should, I should say that, you know, in New York city, there's always been a tradition of uh, what I call the, you know, clubs, but really social clubs, not just clubs. Like the thing is like a club, like the balloon up, for example, they were the first club to really uh, corporatize what a jazz club is. And they made it very strict no hanging out. You came in that you paid for a show. It was very expensive. They had the top, top of the top guys playing. But the real clubs that I remember when I was a kid, like the Village Gate, for example, it was like people were hanging from start to finish. It was like a big family and they're having a ball and people were playing great music. 
And that was always in my mind what a real jazz club was supposed to be about, like getting together with your friends, your cats, you know, colleagues, people from other fields who like, you know, and just hang, you know, play, hang. The bar gets set very high. Um, you know, in those days was a club called the Village Gate owned by Art DeLuga, famous jazz club owner. And that was the scene for us for a while. I hosted the jam session there on what they called the terrace. And that was a, a thing where cats would roll by and play. I was way too young and uh, <clears throat> I didn't know what I was doing, man. I really have to say I was in over my head. But, um, you know, I got my ass kicked so much that it was just ridiculous. I was beaten to a pulp. But I somehow came out of it always keeping inspired. And uh, my teachers always saved me, great teachers. And so uh, I kept playing, even though, like, you know, you know, my boy was like Brad Meldow and he was becoming a superstar because he was a genius. And I'd be left playing the, you know, 7 p.m. solo piano show at some Italian restaurant. So you become humble in your spirit when you serve the music, you know, and that that's kind of what happened for me was like the the arrogance of my youth led to a more mellow approach of my life. And I began to have the idea of rather than trying to uh, make myself into some kind of famous or great artist, I would just uh, resign myself to the idea of service through the music and just enjoy playing and continuously developing, but not trying to necessarily make every making a living from music is very hard. I found at that time, it, it just was uh, it wearying me on my soul. And, uh, so that's why I was going to get into teaching at that point. But what ended up happening, honestly, was uh, Small's Jazz Club. So I, I should get back to the Village Gate. The reason why I brought up the Village Gate was because the scene at the Village Gate was very intense. But what happened was the Village Gate went under. And it was the first of the great jazz clubs to really be crushed in the new corporate New York. And that because the Village Gate is now a CBS drugstore, desecration of our holy spots. But that was that great club fell. And we felt that hard because that just took the floor from under us. But right at that time, a guy named Mitch Borden, great jazz saint, uh, opened up Small's Jazz Club at 183 West 10th Street. And uh, I remember Grant Stewart, who was my best friend at the time, called me up and said, hey, there's going to be a club and I'm going to play the first show. Oh, really? Next thing you know, we're hanging at Small's again. And the whole crew kind of moved from Village Gate right to Small's. And uh, Mitch to brand that club 24 seven, man, you know, at first he tried to get a liquor license and he got ripped off by some lawyer and lost his chance. And then he decided just to do it as a BYOB. And in those days, which was, we're talking about 1994, New York was pretty loose still at that time. I mean, Greenwich Village was pretty wild. You could still smoke inside. People were going crazy in there. It became a, a crazy pit. You know, it, it was like, uh, you know, the thing is, because people now it has people have such high regard for smalls now, which I appreciate very much. But they forget the perspective that back in the old days, I'm talking about this was before I was involved in managing of it. But I was hanging there playing every night and involved in the scene there. I had my own gig every Tuesday night, late night running a session. And, you know, it was a, it was quite a fertile scene. But the thing is, is that all the cats that were hanging there at that time were in their early 20s and nobody knew who they were. So it was guys like, you know, Kurt Rosenwinkel or, you know, Peter Bernstein or Omar Avital, but they were just kids from from Brooklyn trying to have a gig and, and playing late. Now, the real jazz stars at that time, if you're talking about the, the serious, you know, Kenny Kirkland or Mulgrew right. Miller or, uh, you know, James Williams or any of these great musicians that were like that generation, they wouldn't set foot in smalls. Wow. 
they wouldn't be caught dead at Smalls. That, that was a that was Smalls was like a dive bar shit bar. You know, they wouldn't, you know, the real jazz musicians wouldn't take a gig at Smalls. They didn't want to come in there. They go to Bradley's or they'd go to the Vanguard or they go to any number of cards. There were so many clubs. So Smalls was really for kids. It was like a young person's hang where you could, you know, bring your own beer, whatever. You could get messed up. You could meet meet somebody if you wanted to. And but you know, if you were a musician, you'd just be in this hang, you know, it was a perpetual hang. Um so what happened was that went on all the way up till uh, the year 2001. Well, the 9-11 hit. That's, that was a big event that kind of messed up New York. It was, it was kind of like this COVID in the sense that it disrupted the life of New York and shut everything down, became militarized. It was a very dark and scary time. And uh, there was big changes that took place to the New York City's, you know, with the, with the, uh, with the landlords and there was this kind of a push to corporatize New York City and what happened was all the small businesses got pushed out as the landlords renewed their leases for much much higher than what they were accustomed because a, a, a commercial lease they at the end of the term they can raise to whatever they want and so they there was kind of this uniform 10 times the amount push man I mean we were, Mitch was paying about it. when he first started in 94 his rent was $850 for that space and then by the time he got pushed out, it was up to $10,000 a month. Now, he didn't really have any business model except to collect a little money at the door. So it was like, that's the difference between old New York and new New York. It's like old New York, you could find some place somewhere in the East Village or something, put a few tables in there, charge a little bit at the door, and the rent wasn't so bad. You could have a club if you wanted to do it. But now it's like, you know, cutthroat. And uh, <clears throat> what happened is Mitch went bankrupt, basically. And he decided to close Smalls down. Now, this was in 2002. He, he closed Smalls down completely. And what he did was he moved over a place called the Fat Cat. If you've ever been there, it kind of has a look that's reminiscent of Smalls because that's Mitch's design. And he actually moved the music there to Fat Cat for a while. And the jazz scene that now exists at Fat Cat was a result of Mitch moving Smalls there. But during the time that he was at Fat Cat, the new owner of Smalls, some guy took over that space at 183. And what he did is renovated the spot, put in modern toilets and air conditioning and got a liquor license. He, I don't know how he did it. I, I think he was a criminal himself, honestly, but he built a bar in there and that bar was dead as, you know, dead. No one wanted to go there. Anytime anyone came in, they said, oh, it was a smalls. And he said, no, now it's the Ipanema bar or whatever. And uh, people turn around and leave. And it, he really messed it up. It looked terrible in there, like Miami Vice or something, you know, that kind of vibe. But what he did was he finally got sick of it. He went and he found Mitch at Fat Cat. He said, look, let's open Smalls again and I'll own it and you book it and manage it. And we'll call it Smalls and you can try to get your crowd back in here. So Mitch was glad to do that. And that's when he contacted me and said, look, can you get me a piano? I said, yeah, I'll get you a piano. You can have my piano in my apartment. I had a Steinway M in there. If you give me my Sunday night, regular Sunday night with my band, deal. So I was back in and we started up Smalls for a while. Right. And then what happened was in 2006, that guy, the, the Brazilian owner of Smalls, was like, man, this is terrible. I hate jazz clubs. I hate jazz. I mean, we're not making any money down here. This is the dumbest shit I've ever been involved with. He's like, I'm getting out of here. And so he said to Mitch, I'm going to sell the business. If you want to buy it first, you can. Otherwise, I'm going to sell it to anybody that wants to buy it from me. So that's when Mitch said, look, maybe we should buy this business. And what he was selling really was a liquor license and a lease. And that's it. It wasn't property or anything like that. You were just paying for the right to rent the damn place. And uh, what I did was I, I talked it over 
I talked it over with my dad. I, I went and saw my dad and my dad and I have a rocky relationship, always have had a rocky one. He's a professor, real academic kind of guy and a very, very serious guy. But uh, I went up to see him once at his house and I said, dad, you know, um, he knew I was in school, like, you know, trying to finish my master's degree, trying to teach. And then I said, look, you know, this, this bar that I play in is for sale. And uh, I'm thinking maybe I could do that by the bar and run a bar. Right. But I'm, you know, also about to finish my master's degree and uh, maybe I, I don't know what to do. You know, like I'm thinking, you know, what, what, what's the, what advice can you give me? And he was thought about it for a second and I was ready for his answer to be like, you know, Michael, it's time for you to, that's my real name, by the way, Michael Wilner. He said, Michael, it's time for you to, you know, he, I was thinking he was going to say that Michael, it's time for you to get grown up and pay some music. Da, da, da. But instead he looked at me for a second. He said, man, buy the bar. I was like, what? Really? <laughs> right. He said, buy the bar, man. And I said, why? And he said, cause he goes, he goes nothing worse than being a teacher. He's like, I, I never want to do this shit again in my life. And he was just like, whatever you do, don't become a college professor. He's like, do not do it. He's like, you can pit, drive a trash truck. I'd rather you do that than go into college teaching. I was like, damn, okay. <laughs> so it was kind of cynical advice, but at the same time, I took him to heart. So that's when I, uh, I, I got some money together and uh, went in as a partner there at Smalls. That was in 2007. And, uh, there was another gentleman that was my friend that had gone in with me at that time named Lee and me and Lee and Mitch ran the club for a while. And then Lee decided to go and I bought out his portion of it. And we continued Mitch and I running the club together up until, uh, well, right about 2019, which was when Mitch finally retired. He decided that he, he had had enough of smalls. He had been there a long time and him and his wife moved to Brooklyn. So it was kind of a, a tumultuous year where uh, I had to kind of really, for the first time in my life, take over the club on every angle. And it, it forced me to rethink things. I should also mention that uh, in 2013, we opened a second spot called Mesro, which became our companion club right across the street from Smalls. Yeah. And, it, you know, that was when I designed and we just kind of thought at first it would just be a holding pen for people waiting for their shows at Smalls. And then it kind of took on a vibe of its own and then it was quite popular in its own right so we had quite a busy period especially in the last five years running both clubs simultaneously and uh, the one thing that i should say also that i'm very proud of was that uh, you know i took a class when i was at the new school from phil Shap, and he was telling the story about how in the old days at those clubs in kansas city they would put a radio wire in there and broad broadcast you know, Count Basie's band, like on AM radio and go all over the country and people would be hearing and defining it. And made me think about the internet and the live streaming, which we started right away. Right. And uh, I really was interested in getting that out to the people because I didn't want to waste it by just being in a thing. I really felt like all the music that was happening was historic value. And so we also started to record it and archive it and it quickly amassed a huge amount. And that kind of became this ongoing project that uh, we're still doing which is the audio video archive project. And so essentially we've recorded every single show at Smalls and Mesro since September of 2007. Wow. And That's the part that, that, you know, maybe you, you realized it and a lot of people didn't before you because, you know, like I was saying, I'm from Mississippi, man. There is no jazz. Like there's like two or three dudes playing jazz and mm -hmm. some really good dudes, but it's just not like if you're 15 or 16 or any age, you can't just go out and here, I can't just go out and hear Tane. 
But because yeah. you archived it, I could be like, oh man, like I could just type in Jeff Tane Watts on this. And it was free back then. It was completely free, no login, nothing. You just got on there and typed the name in. That's Anybody true. you think of. And it would just be like so much shit to listen to and you just, your head would explode. Yeah, man. Well, we have, we're at 19,000 plus recordings in there and at least 4,000 musicians represented. Wow. Quite a few historical ones, I think, like with musicians that have passed. We had a lot of Roy Hargrove that used to, that was recorded down there and a lot of, you know, Harry Whitaker, great, great artists that have come and gone that are, you know, and just a, a real document of the uh, the day-to-day work of the bands, you know, and, and it's, it's an amazing fabric. I, you know, one thing that uh, we started doing, well, I should say that with this archive um, this year, actually, it's funny because it was like two years ago, I decided to create a not-for-profit foundation because I really felt that uh, Smalls was uh, in danger just based on the economics that were happening, which is that, you know, we were, you know, we only have 70 spots in that club. We, it's $20 each to get in and we're very reluctant to change our cover charge. You can't really charge more at the bar. So there's kind of this ceiling of earnings that can be earned in that environment. And we were at max, you know, you couldn't go past what we were doing just because of physical impossibility. Yet the costs were still rising. So that was when I endeavored to create a not-for-profit foundation that I thought could maybe subsidize club costs and also sponsor artists in different ways. Um, but I, and the current site that we have now is actually the website that I started two years ago, along with a few uh, people that have been working very closely on it, trying to organize the music and create a system that wasn't a store or even a record company, but a kind of like a foundation where members can access it the artists get paid royalties based on their use. The artists can own the, they own the music themselves a hundred percent. Um, and ways for people to sponsor live bands and all this, it became a quite a thing. And then of course, what happened was on March 15th, the, uh, COVID shut us down, you know, as you well know, as everybody knows, and we've, we're basically still closed to this day. Um, you know, we had a brief period where they let us, run at 25% occupancy until that ended mid-December. There's no indication when we may be able to operate. But what happened is that I launched that not-for-profit right after the COVID, knowing that this was going to be something that was going to be very important. And it ended up being unbelievably important. And we got a tremendous response. And I have to say that it has paid for all the bills for both clubs all the way through this year and into this year as well. All, all through last year up to now. It's like, and we would have definitely been done had I not been able to have had that together and the response from the people and the, and the, the, the generosity of the fans worldwide. It, it's really been amazing to see it. Now, I never even expected to have to float the clubs this long at this point. You know, I was mm-hmm. thinking a few weeks, I was thinking maybe a couple of months. Right. So this is turning into a long-term thing and we're expected to make all the expenses on everything without any real help so it's been super challenging and we're watching clubs fold left and right and restaurants mm-hmm. folding left and right. Right. Yeah. I, know, so. I, I don't think people who aren't in the arts, some, maybe they don't realize what you're going through as, as a business owner. And also they don't even realize how innovative you are because immediately you were like, okay, plan B, start a nonprofit, use the power of the internet to try to keep well, thing going. Thank, you know? I just want to say, Darren, thank you for saying that. But honestly, it's amazing is that that was something that I started putting together before COVID. If I had 
needed to do that not during COVID, it probably would have been impossible. But oh. it's a miracle that I got it all done in advance of COVID, having the, the corporation formed and the, the the website completed. And if it hadn't been done, it would have just we would have been man, we would have been devastated. The club would have been over. Right. And there's so many things that that, that you said. I mean. Um, from your history and but but you know I, I really something that really hit me hard was like I really appreciate the the sense of community like all throughout um, kind of you talking about your life and the, uh, the the true essence of like I think what Smalls brings to the table is community and you know it was amazing to hear you talk about the cats you grew up with the, the people who, who influenced you the people you grew up watching at Smalls back in the day and it's it's really cool to to you know again like you know, Smalls kind of got on my radar in the the 2007s, 2008s, like when I was a little in college and things like that. But, you know, there's there's 20 or so, 30 years of history before that. Like you're saying, it's like a club where cats would go get messed up and meet chicks. And and now it's become like this this institution. In I'll, our I'll, I'll, I'll give you a, I'll tell you a secret. The Vanguard was like that too. I remember when I was a kid, the Vanguard was not like now. It's like you go to the Vanguard. It's like sitting foot in a church. You have to be silenced and hallow ground, you know. And, yeah. But though it wasn't like that in the old days. It was a hang. There was that kitchen back there. People were getting messed up, and it was a big hang. There was a bar there. You know, people used to like to drink in New York in the old days. They were really bars were important. But I want to say that both of you guys said something that that I that is important things. Um, and Darian, you said that most people that are not in the arts don't know. And that I think is very true. It's like this this COVID thing has been devastating to everyone involved. And we're talking on a worldwide scale. So you can't ever say we're hurt worse than you or anything. That's a terrible place to come out. So I don't really want to ever come across like that's what I'm saying. But as someone who is a jazz musician in New York City running a jazz club, I feel like this has been particularly devastating to our musical community based on a few things that most people probably don't need to worry about. For one thing, uh, most musicians that I know that are professionals make their living traveling. You know, a lot of my friends spend years on the road. You're traveling from place to place, earning a living, playing concerts. You're teaching in front of people. You're doing master classes. You're teaching one-on-one or you're playing in clubs or venues. And, uh, all of that has been completely stopped. You know, there's nothing left. Anyone that's running a venue is over. Anybody that made their living that way, it's stopped. Yet the bills are continuing. So uh, people who are freelance artists, and and the thing is the jazz thing was super elite. You know, people don't realize, you know, what jazz is and how elite it is. So I'd say our community, and I mean the community of musicians, honestly, jazz musicians particularly, and, and that's worldwide, got hit hard. You know, the clubs got hit hard, really hard. And I've had communications with, I've been, you know, I'm very good friends with uh, Jed and Deborah at the Vanguard, and I talk to them all the time. And I'm very good friends with uh, Johnny Valenti at Berland. He's a great guy and what's happening with his club. And I knew all, I know Seth and what happened at Jazz Standard. And so the jazz clubs in New York are really not competing with each other. It's much more symbiotic. You know, you, you want to have a lot of clubs so that people are banging around from one place to the other. You're not really fighting with them over things. So every club has its own thing. So when clubs start going down like that, it becomes very scary. You know, the Blue Whale in, in LA is closed. That was a great club. You know, it's like how many jazz clubs have to go down? It may be all of them at the end of the day. We don't know yet what's going to really happen. So um, I don't think people know uh, 
what's happening in New York City that clearly, you know, I don't, I don't think most people in the world don't understand what's happened to this city. They don't understand how devastated New York has become, that, that the level of shuttered businesses and uh, what happened to the service industry, particularly restaurants and bars. And we got left holding the bag. There was no help. There's been no subsidies. There's no been rent. You know, so it's a baffling time for me to even, I'm, my head, I'm stuff scratching my head, like why they're doing it this way and why they want to be so destructive to the culture of New York City. But nonetheless, that's what's happening. And so we have to be very vigilant and try to preserve our culture because it, it could be over fast. Mm-hmm. And what what you said about the community is also part of that, is that jazz musicians are, you know, jazz is a communal art form. So you need to be interacting with other musicians in order to learn, to make your playing better, and also to communicate with an audience of people who are there to receive your music and give you the energy. It's a big energy thing. And anyone that knows music knows what I'm talking about with that. And jazz is jazz is super pure because it's mostly acoustic and, you know, and like I grew up in the jazz community, as it were, you know, and my teachers were like a guy like Barry Harris, for example, who in those days was very, very, pow- he's always very powerful. In those days, he was super powerful. And he had a, uh, a a place, his own place, the Jazz Cultural Theater, where he would give classes and rehearsals and singers. And, be- and I would experience this. And I'd say it's very, very closely knit to the African-American culture, because obviously that's where it's from. So you have all those elements. And, and what I mean by that is also just there's a certain church element that was involved with the jazz community, a spirituality thing. And it may have been Christian, too, in a way, but there were plenty of Jews in there and plenty of everybody. And what was it was it was broad enough for everyone to belong to because the common denominator was the love of the music. And if you were a musician that could really play, you were in this kind of family immediately didn't matter who you were, if you could play. And then it was like the same thing with with the fans, if they were in there, if, if they were part of the community. It, you know, it it just was this relation. And, and I can say that, uh, oh, hold on a second. Someone's coming to visit. Mama's. Okay. My daughter's come to visit. This is stuff they don't teach you in jazz school, like real, real life. <laughs> Whoa. Hey. That's Lulu. Hey, Sorry, it's up? been a long interview and they're waiting for me. Did, did you guys? Okay. Um, if we can, can you say bye-bye to your friend? Bye-bye. All right. I'm going to go. I have to, you got to go with mom and dad's going to talk to your friend. Okay. All right. Well, you can stay a minute. Stay one minute. I just, what I was going to say is that, like, for example, I was, uh, there used to be a tradition in New York City of uh, funerals at St. Peter's, okay. uh, where when when people were when when a jazz musician would pass, they would have a memorial service in a church for the musician, where invited artists would play very tastefully short pieces or something. It wouldn't be like a big show, and there'd be religious some religious uh, some religious a service as well so it was this kind of combination of of religion and and uh, music and the community and people would come out to pay their respects and when i was a kid and i'm talking about a kid like 18 years old or something like that that hit me like a ton of bricks because i i'm also a spiritual person in my heart and i'm always looking for for spirituality everywhere and it was so palpable 
And at the same time, I have to say it was the most beautifully integrated scene you'll ever see in your life of just all humanity together bound by the love of this special spiritual music. And it affected me hard. And New York was really like that. It had this jazz cultural community. And anyone you could talk to that's from a certain generation will know I'm right because the environment was such for it. It was everywhere. You know, it was really a big thing. But then it started to diminish, you know, and it's diminished rapidly. One of the big things, like I said, 9-11 came along and there's been a push to change what New York is, which is what is culture? Culture is from the people. People are not rich, you know, the real people. So if the culture can support poor people, it's fine. But when it can no longer support poor people, then a lot gets lost, you know. This COVID thing is super weird to me. There's a lot of things about it I just can't understand. And I'll never really talk about it, at least on a public level. I'll talk to you privately about my views. But, you know, it's just like I can only go on what I'm experiencing is a, as a businessman who runs a jazz venue and also as a musician, you know, and how I see it affecting my friends. You know, right. I was thinking about, you know, like yet the other day we had uh, Corey Wallace down at Smalls. We've been doing just so I can explain also what's happening is once COVID shut us down, we decided to, to use our funds to do what I call Get the Cats Working Again, which is a, basically a fund where we're trying to collect money to pay one band a day to perform live at the club on our webcam for our, for our stream. We could do it on Facebook and YouTube and on our own site. And so we can pay them like professionally for that and also some a small percentage for the venue so as to create enough to basically pay the rent. We're just trying to see if we can pay the rent and at one band a day. And we've been successful at that, actually. We've been we're very successful, in fact. So we've gotten through the whole year on that very method of people supporting bands and we give them the endorsement. We've been shouting out to sponsors and it's been really nice, actually. But I bring it up because, you know, Corey came in the other day with his band, great band. Darren, that was you on the gig, actually. Yeah, yeah. I think about it. Sorry, man. You know, I totally space. In fact, great drummer, Darren, playing. But you know what? You guys were talking about it, and I totally agreed, which was just like feeling so grateful to play. Mm-hmm. You know, just having a chance to finally play again with your friends or with your, you know, with your constituents, whoever you are with, you know. And uh, man, it's that's what I was hitting me because sometimes when you're a professional musician, you can really get sick of music. You have to get you get sick of playing sometimes. It can be a drag, you know, or you you're sick of playing the same old da da da. Yeah. But then have it taken away from you, then you realize, wow, this is so special, and yeah. thank God for this. Yeah. You get kind of jaded. I, I do want to touch on a point that a really good point that you made that the symbiotic relationship of clubs, but also if you're not a touring musician, you don't realize that. When you are on tour, say you play one big venue, but you need those clubs. Those clubs going to get you to the next city, you know, because you can play two or three clubs on the way to that next big hit, you know, because you may only have three or four big gigs right. on, on, on a tour. You know, if you're not doing stadium, if you're just doing a, you know, a medium sized tour or whatever. You gotta- I know exactly what you're talking about. You yeah. know, uh, I, I've had, you know, I've done a lot of, European tours throughout my career with different bands, some a uh, lot of European musicians as well as some other people, um, but also played in a lot of those little clubs all over Europe and and got to see them. And of course, as a club owner too, I became friendly with the owners and just you know it's kind of fun to be on both sides really. But uh, one of the visions I had for Small's Live Foundation, the, the foundation, is if we could really get proper funding, would be it would be great to sponsor tours 
mm. of small clubs. Like if you could, let's say you didn't need to worry about those big gigs to pay everything. Like what if you could just get a grant from a foundation that would pay the air travel and salary of the musicians. And then you just book only these little clubs yeah. and charge just like very nominal rates for people to come there. Maybe the clubs are good for just like, you know, a dinner in a room or something like they don't have to pay a lot for the musicians. And you just start putting some great bands going on tour. You could create a whole circuit of little clubs. If you had the right funding, you could just start a whole circle of cats going through the same thing. Yeah. I know there's a bunch. Now, I don't know what the scene's going to be like post-COVID, man. We have to kind of realize that all our dreams up to that point are, are, are now kind of subject to, we have to kind of wait and see. It's it's really hard to think that everything's going to jump right back. I think that there's going to be a lot more damage than people realize. Absolutely. I, I think it'll take, it because Greg and I, I moved to New Orleans right after Katrina, and I, I'll say it took five years before New Orleans became normal again. Yeah. And so, you know, that that's kind of what we're living through right now. It might be five to 10 years before it it's like it was po- uh, pre-COVID. As far as... it's You know, it's impossible to conjecture. That's all I can say. Who knows? Because... Uh, I don't know, man. I, I I think anyone. It's impossible to make predictions at this point because it, you just don't know. Yeah, we haven't assessed the damage yet. You talk yeah. about Katrina. I think Katrina is a very good analogy because that's what, at least with New York, it was kind of like a uh, you know a financial hurricane destroying New York City, and we haven't been able to sort out the damage yet. You know, yeah. you can walk around Greenwich Village very easily though and count the number of uh, for rent signs you see because shit got cleared out down here, man. This is the area of a very unforgiving rent. You know, you miss one or two months and forget it, you're done. Yeah. Unless you have deep pockets, most people don't. So, but you know, like an event like I get like COVID or Katrina, and you know, I think that's that that like just, you know, it it makes a place like Smalls and it makes those smaller communities like those those small owned businesses even more important because I feel like you know COVID and Katrina, those were both opportunities to clear out the cities for corporations, people to come in with money and buy things cheap. And then mm-hmm. 10 years later, it's 10 times more than it was 10 years ago. But you know, yeah, that's what's happening. And, that's exactly and, what it is. And it's like, man, you know, for, for something like for, again for an organization like Smalls or all the communities that we love, like we have to support people like you and and really support our, the local infrastructure because man shit when everything becomes corporate that sucks when everything becomes a cbs yeah. like <laughs> well i'll tell you i my my feeling is like i'm gonna i'm really just kind of committing myself psychologically for 2021 hmm. and continuing in this current vein that we're in which is one show a day live stream close club whatever they make us do now next year at this time maybe we'll have an interview and if things are similar or worse then I don't know. You know, I'm not going to be in this thing where I'm going to just burn myself completely out. It has to be some sense that there will be a rebound, that there will be an a, a, an ability for a jazz venue to come back. If we can even do it modestly, I'm going to do it. But if it becomes like impossible, then impossible is impossible. And that's not our fault. That's the, the environment's fault. And, and that's what happens sometimes. Things change and things end. You know, sometimes we all got to just go through the stages of grieving and realize that maybe there is some, some things we got to start accepting about what we do and, and, you know, what was, I mean, jazz clubs are archaic, man. You know, they were archaic before COVID. Right. Now it's particularly so because especially like a basement, who's going to come down to a basement club and 
sit down there. You know, I don't know. People are afraid to even go into a store. It's just so sad because again, like, you know, coming back to the idea of community and human connection and people from different backgrounds, you know, finding some way to, to link up, have conversations, become friends. Like, I mean, that's the value of being down in the basement, <laughs> you know, and, and, yeah. and clubs like I, that. you know, I'm, of course I agree. Yeah. Yeah. No, we're getting close to time and, and I want to make sure we don't forget to give you an opportunity to tell the people how they can donate. Uh, it's a small, small organization so that we don't have to see that future and, and while we wait for the whatever else to kick in so we can get back to but the best way to support us really right now is through our is the Smalls Life Foundation which is a 5013C uh, which means that it's a not-for-profit corporation and that's here in New York City um, and our mission with the, the not-for-profit is uh, to support the venues and float them through the pandemic to a time when they can be autonomous again, uh, to fund uh, musicians for their performances, also individual projects, as well as emergency funds for musicians who are really in a hard place. And we've been doing some of that. We do it very discreetly. But we're always uh, available to people who are really need are in a hard place, and we we've, we've been glad to be able to do that for quite a few people, you know. And uh, education, of course, we like to think about jazz education. We've been in partnership with the New School, and teach a course there that's called uh, Small's Live Profiles from the Archive, where we profile different jazz artists for a class, and we try to choose artists that are not necessarily household names even by jazz standards, but just like, you know, people who have been on the scene and are contributing and it's been very successful. It's became, it became a required class. And of course, COVID knocked that out. So we're going to be doing that virtually starting next semester again. And that's also partially funded by the foundation. Uh, the foundation's primary mission right now is just seeing us through this pandemic to, to if we can. Um, our website is www.smallslive.com, S-M-A-L-L-S-L-I-V-E.com. Um, you can register for free. There's no cost to become a member and becoming a member allows you to watch any of our live streams for free, no charge. You can watch right from our website there, make comments. You can check out, um, the audio video archive requires a donation and the minimum donation is $10 and that's good for the whole tax year. So if you'd like to make a donation of $10, it's tax deductible and it gives you access to the archive for the remainder of the tax year. If you'd like to make a larger gift, you're welcome to do so. There's a lot of different ways you can do that on the site. If you want to get a gift, we have some gifts that you can buy. If you'd like to make a monthly donation, that's possible. If you want to do a free form donation, uh, we take bitcoins. We're glad, to, very glad to take bitcoins if anyone wants to give them to us. And uh, you know, the website is pretty much comprehensive. Um, people can also reach us at the email, which is foundation at smallslive.com, and that's also. Any questions about the Get the Cats working or any of those things where we're funding bands, they can reach out to us if they have a band that they want to sponsor. Particularly, we're publishing names of musicians looking for sponsorships on our shows or if they have a band that they want to sponsor. We're always welcome to that. At this point, we're glad for anybody's help and uh, people have been very kind. That's all I can say. That's amazing. So y'all y'all make sure y'all uh, give all your money in all of those oh. ways. <laughs> if you got to give it all, give it all. And uh, help support the music and keep the music alive, man. 
Yes, yeah, Spike, man. Thank you so much for coming on the Working Artist Project. Hey, my pleasure. It's great to talk to you guys. And thank you for this good work. This is also very helpful, just kind of being this organized and presenting interesting interviews with people. Uh, you know, keeps it keeps the community alive. It really does. It's insightful. Oh, man, we appreciate it. And also, you're a great drummer, man. Like, serious people. I hope people realize how bad you are. Thank you. Best. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Wow. Thank you, thank you, Spike, for being an inspiration to, to the young cats. You know, showing us how it's done and, and oh. you know allowing us. That means I'm us. not a young cat, right? Oh <laughs> man, we're all we're all young at heart. That's <laughs> all right. I deserve it. But you got you got you got some. You know, you've had you have more experience than us, and you've you know through your experience and uh, you, you've created opportunities for us to to meet each other, to hang, to listen to cats like yourself, to listen to Roy and. And hear a lot of uh, great music and, and be part of that community. So thank you. Thank you. Making sure great. You- I appreciate it. I appreciate the support. I always do. And, uh, you know, looking forward to hanging at the bar with you guys in the future. Absolutely. When that, when everything finally passes over. Absolutely. All right, guys. Thank you so much. We'll catch y'all later.